Hi, my name's Zach. I'm 12 years old, and I host We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. Like a lot of kids my age, when I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world will be waiting for us. Will polar bears still roam the Arctic? Will we still be able to see colorful coral reefs or build snowmen in the winter? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions from some of the world's leading experts, and share what I learned with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet. Subscribe to We the Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at wethechildrenpodcast.com. Remember, we, the children, have the power to make a difference. another episode of Show About Science. This is your host, Nate. Today, we're going to talk about drumroll, please. Boom, boom. Charles Darwin's brilliant idea, evolution. So let's get this science buddy started. Today, we're going to be interviewing Cliff Tabin from Harvard Medical School. He has a PhD and everything. Dr. Tapin's office. Hello. Hi, hold on one second for Dr. Tapin, okay? Okay, sounds good. Sorry guys, we're just waiting for Cliff. <sighs> He's probably busy. Hello, this is Cliff Tabin. Hello. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a developmental biologist and an evolutionary biologist, which means I'm interested in trying to understand how embryos form, how you get from a single cell that's been fertilized, a fertilized egg into an individual just like you, how you get all the types of cells in your body, and even more importantly, how you get the form and shape of your body. And then I'm interested in how that process has changed to give the differences in form and shape of all the animals you see around you in the world. So I'm interested in the evolution of the variety of life on Earth. And I'm a professor in the genetics department at Harvard Medical School. So my first question isn't really about evolution, but we'll get there in a couple questions. Sure. So have you ever been published? And if so, how could I get published? Well, publishing is part of what we do as scientists. I mean, the whole point of science is to add to the knowledge of the world. So if you just do experiments in your basement and make interesting discoveries, you can have lots of fun. But if you don't publish and tell other people about it, then you're not really helping advance knowledge. So that's a big part of what we do. I've published several hundred different papers in different journals over my career. In terms of how to publish, the first step is to have something publishable, that is to say, have a discovery. But if you work in a laboratory or you do some theoretical work and you think you have something new, then you write it up as a little essay or a little report and you send it to the editor of a journal and you explain why you think it's important and why it might be interesting to the readers of the journal. And if the editor agrees that that's possible, the editor then sends it to other people, experts in the field, to see if they agree. And if they agree, he writes back to you and says, I'm delighted to publish this paper. The goal 
isn't just publishing for its own sake. The goal is first to discover new things and then to share that knowledge with everyone else is when you publish. How about if you're trying to publish a paper other than science? Well, I haven't published a lot of things that aren't science. I haven't written fiction or poetry or any of other things which are equally worthwhile, but just haven't been the place that I've put my own energies, not things that I've been probably as well suited to either. So, how did Charles Darwin come up with evolution? Ah, Charles Darwin. Well, Charles Darwin was one of the great thinkers of all time. And he went on a voyage when he was a young man as a naturalist on a boat. The boat was called the Beagle. And it sailed from England and went all around the world. And as he went to different places, he saw both living animals and some fossils that made him start thinking about the world in sort of a new way. But at the time that he was traveling, the idea of evolution was actually something that other people had thought of too. That is, the idea that animals change over time. He wasn't the first to think of the idea that some animals give rise to other animals. But what was missing was a mechanism. No one understood why would animals change? Why would they become the way they are? And as he went to, to different places, he saw examples of animals that started him thinking that change had to be taking place. So, for example, he went to a place called the Galapagos Islands. And there they had on each island a different type of tortoise. Yet in all of South America, there was just one type of tortoise. Now, if it was just a question of God creating animals and placing them in their final form, it's hard to understand why he would put a different type of tortoise on each island while he had one walking around South America. But it made more sense if you think about them all being related to each other, and maybe each one on each island just by chance was a little bit different, and you've got a little bit of a different group of animals that because they were in isolation and they were able to change. And in the end, he correctly realized, first of all, that evolution had been taking place, that, for example, the birds on the Galapagos Islands or the tortoises were descended from animals that came down there. For example, take Darwin's finches. Darwin's finches are a group of birds that are very closely related. Even though they're incredibly closely related, when Darwin first got to the Galapagos, he didn't even realize that the different finches were related to each other. He thought they were totally different birds. Some of them had beaks like parrots. Some of them had beaks like hummingbirds. Some of them had beaks like woodpeckers. They looked completely different. But once he realized, with the help of an ornithologist, a bird scientist friend of his, that in fact they were all closely related, and he realized what had happened was a single bird or family of birds had made it out to the Galapagos Islands blown by some hurricane, and there were no other birds there. In the absence of any competition, without any other birds to interfere with them, the birds evolved to do all the things birds are capable of doing. Even though they were all closely related, they became very different from each other. But the insight that changed the world was his realizing how it occurred, why it occurred. The whole idea of the survival of the fittest that if you have animals that are each slightly different from each other and all of them have babies, the ones that are a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, a little bit more attractive to mates will have more babies, just a few more babies, but that's all it takes.
So, for example, if you have light-colored animals and dark-colored animals, and they're living on lava, so the dark-colored animals hide better, and the light-colored animals are easy for predators to see. Every generation, there'll be more dark-colored animals surviving because predators e are eating more light-colored animals. But then the dark-colored animals give birth to babies that are also dark-colored. Each generation, there'll be more and more dark-colored and less and less light-colored. And eventually, on that lava, all the animals will be dark. And it was that mechanism, that idea of what he called natural selection that was really the key insight that changed the way biologists and indeed the world thinks about animals. And there's another guy who doesn't get as much popular credit, but a guy named Alfred Wallace, who actually had very similar ideas right at the same time. And he and Charles Darwin first published them together. But part of the reason that Darwin is the one who gets the credit is because Alfred Wallace wrote a very short little essay about it whereas Darwin wrote this huge, thick book where he laid out all the evidence in great detail. And if you read the book, which is called On the Origin of Species, it is just so convincing that people realized he had to be right. And that was very, very important. Have you ever been to the Galapagos? Yes. Um, so we're in a genetics department, and part of what that reflects is the fact that we try and figure out not just what happens in nature, but what the genes are that are responsible for it. And so we've looked at genes that are involved in making legs bigger for animals that hop instead of run. We're looking at genes that are responsible for blind cave fish losing their eyes. Sort of a classical question that we decided to look at at one point was trying to understand what genes were responsible for the different shapes of the beaks of these birds in the Galapagos of the Darwin's finches. So we did that work. To do it, one had to collect finch eggs down in the Galapagos. So I sent people, young people from my laboratory, students, down to the Galapagos to collect the eggs. And it's actually, by the way, it's interesting, the way these birds live, taking the eggs from them doesn't change the population size at all. Because as it happens, these birds build nests, and then every day they lay an additional egg until the nest is full with four eggs in it. And they just go by how full the nest is, so if you go in after the first day and take one egg out, the bird doesn't remember how many eggs there were. They lay one egg every day. They just lay an extra egg. So the birds actually have the same number of eggs as they would have anyway. And the birds are very plentiful down there. They're sort of like pigeons or robins are up here. But in any case, I sent these students of mine down there to collect the eggs so that we could put them in incubators, so that we could study the embryos, so we could figure out what the genes were that were important for their beaks. And the students did a marvelous job. And I would have loved to have gone down there. The problem was you can't spend research money just for the vacation. If I went down there, I'd have to be doing part of the work. And to do the work requires staying there for a long time, partially because the birds lay eggs when the rains come, and you can't predict when the rains are going to come. So you have to go down there early when they're building their nests so you can figure out which nest is which, so, and so you can hear the birds singing and know what species they are. But then you have to sit and wait. And as a professor, with, I have a lot of responsibilities. I have other people in my lab. I have to teach classes. So I can't just disappear for a couple months and hang out in the Galapagos, even though it would be a lot of fun. So I never went down there for the research. And then a documentary company was making a, a nature film about Darwin and his research and about modern genetics and how we are learning things now that Darwin couldn't even have imagined, but that actually verify the things Darwin was talking about. And they wanted to 
film me in the Galapagos. So they flew me down there, along with the student who'd done the work. He came along too. But what I'd really like to do is go back with my own children and my wife and show them myself what evolution looks like in action and to show them, because it's really a very special place. But I didn't go on vacation. And because I didn't go on vacation, I only went where we needed to go for the documentary. So there's a lot of very cool things in the Galapagos Islands. There's these blue-footed boobies, some really cool birds. There are sea iguanas and land iguanas and all sorts of animals that are really fun to see. I didn't see any of them. All I did, I saw the tortoises and I saw the finches because those were the animals that we'd done research on or that we talked about that we knew something about. And that's what they wanted to film me with. But it still was a thrill to go down there and to stand on the same beaches that Charles Darwin would have stood on and, and see this extraordinary place where you can actually, you know, just by observing, get a clear glimpse of evolution. So I'm very glad that I got to go. So I watched the film with you on it. Oh, you did? And I saw those two students collecting eggs. Oh, very good. Did you enjoy the film? I loved it. That's great. Well, I hope you get to go to the Galapagos someday yourself, because it really is a special place. Yeah. I'm hoping I'll see those marine iguanas. Yeah, they're very cool, aren't they? Yeah. Like, almost dinosaur-looking. Yeah, like with spikes on their back. Yes, that's right. And black-colored, so they blend in with the lava rocks. Yeah, so they don't get eaten. Exactly. And uh, this might be the last question or two. Sure. How does evolution work? Well, I think the answer is very close to what Charles Darwin and, and Alfred Wallace hypothesized. that You have animals trying to survive, trying to attract mates, trying to live their lives. And the ones that are a little bit better suited to whatever they are doing are more likely to have offspring. But every once in a while, the environment changes, or the animal encounters a new place, or a new predator, and then they have to adapt to it. And in every generation, there's always slight differences. Slight differences because you're not exactly just like your father or just like your mother, but you're sort of a combination between the two. And no two brothers or sisters are exactly alike. Each one's a unique combination of their parents. And then on top of that, there are new mutations, new changes in the DNA in every generation that make very subtle changes that make you even slightly different than anything your parents could have been. And all those little changes mean that every generation, animals are different from each other. So that in every generation, if any of those little changes give you an advantage, then those little changes will stay in the population. And those changes will add up, and eventually the species will evolve. It'll change. And it is an amazing process because the process of forming a, an embryo from a single cell and modifying that process to give slight differences. And it's very beautiful to watch. It's extraordinary. But the end result is just amazing. The difference between a deer and a mouse at some level is not so different, right? They start with a single cell. That cell has to learn to make skin cells that will produce fur. They have to make eye cells. They have to make liver cells. They have to make muscle cells. Basically, the tests the embryo faces are pretty much the same, but subtle, slight differences in the way the legs have to be a little bit longer or a little bit shorter, different shape of the tail, different shape of the ears, very slight differences 
and it generates this just extraordinary beauty that we see around us. And the incredible thing is that human beings are capable of not just observing that beauty and, and really enjoying it, but also of understanding it. And evolution really can be understood. And that's an amazing thing in itself. Thank you for being on my show, Cliff. My pleasure. I should say your show is tremendous. I've listened to a couple of them on my computer. You're doing a great job and a great service for educating people. So keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Well, that's it on the show about science, everyone. By the way, on special occasions, I'm not going to be saying. That's it for the show about science. Dad, you can shut the recording off. But that's just on special occasions. Instead, I'm going to say, this is Nate signing out. Hi, my name's Zach. I'm 12 years old, and I host We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. Like a lot of kids my age, when I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world will be waiting for us. Will polar bears still roam the Arctic? Will we still be able to see colorful coral reefs or build snowmen in the winter? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions from some of the world's leading experts and share what I learned with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet. Subscribe to We the Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit us at wethechildrenpodcast.com. Remember, we, the children, have the power to make a difference.